What episode is this? Episode f- uh, four, five. Welcome to Bottoms on Top. <laughs> <laughs> Look for yourself what episode it is. Yes. I'm John. I'm Andreas. And we're happy to have you. Yes. So, John, what are you going to be for Halloween? Oh, my God. You sound like my mom has asked me, like, every day, all month. And I'm like, you're really stressing me out Your because mom? I don't know. What? My mom hates Halloween. Oh, I think my family's always been, like, pretty invested in costumes. That's um, so nice because like, mm, my mom, she, when I was in elementary school, she would always force me to have, like, costumes, quote-unquote, but, like, they always advanced her own agenda. <laughs> so <laughs> what I mean by that is, for example, when I was in sixth grade, my mother said, you're all going to get buzz cuts because I'm tired of, like, fixing your hair. She gave the three of my brothers buzz cuts. We went to Old Navy and bought cargo pants and green shirts, and she called us soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> That's I was so, so mad. I was so mad. Like, I came to school, and everyone was like, you don't have a costume for the Halloween parade. And I was like, because I'm a soldier today. <laughs> and, like, and I was also really embarrassed because I had a haircut. So I like Halloween nowadays because I can do whatever I want. Right. You know, got the big girl checks. I don't know if people call it this or I call it this, but I believe that Halloween is gay Christmas. Like, I think it's the most important day in the liturgical calendar for gays. Preach. Um, I feel like it's cool because, like, Halloween, everyone just kind of dresses up kind of crazy. But I feel like a lot of times, like, us gays, we don't need, like, excuses for that. But having it be Halloween is, like, an excuse to go the extra, extra mile to do that, you know? I feel like it's when, like, we are just able to leave the house and, like, what we normally wear around the house to clean... Mm-hmm. So, like a lot of like dominatrix outfits that like usually don't <laughs> see the light of day. I w- I a was French able maid. to wear one of my my many nightgowns out and about, and I was like, oh, it's a grandmother's outfit, but really it's just like what I wear to bed. <laughs> it's Halloween month. We're leading up to it. Have spooky. you done anything spooky? Um, I have not done anything spooky except for retweet a bunch of people on Twitter who have changed their names to Spooky Blank. Yeah, I don't support that trend, honestly. I really want to go to Eastern State Penitentiary, Terror Behind the Walls, but I want to do it with a crush as a date, but I don't have a crush. I won't say getting dick in Eastern State Penitentiary is the goal, (laughs) but, like, some approximation of that is the goal. I... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Since I'm not going to be able to find anyone to go with me romantically do you want to come i get scared so easy but i'll do it okay thank you i did have um a gay nightmare the other night um how spooky (laughs) and i haven't told you because i wanted to wait until this very moment so basically in the dream i was like about to hook up with this daddy and he was like really cute or whatever but he seemed a little cagey and i was like I'm about to get scammed, like, I don't really know. So I go over, and he's, like, really handsome. And he's, like, um, he wants me to eat his ass in this dream. And I'm, like, okay, like, roll up your sleeves, John, like, get to work. <laughs> and then I, like, as I'm going down, I can, like, x-ray vision, see that he has some type of, like, blood blister, like, right behind, like, his anus. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, like, okay, well, whatever, like, you got to do what you got to do. And then I, when I put my mouth up to his ass in the stream, um, 
the blood blister exploded all over my face. Oh my god. And I like ran away screaming, covered in his anal blood. <laughs> and he was just like laughing maniacally behind me. It was terrifying. That is such a gay nightmare. <laughs> I am so that's so scary. Yeah. Like, did you wake up after that? Probably in like a cold sweat, like <laughs> reaching for my moist towelettes to wipe my mouth. That is so scary. So I think that that's like your horoscope. So my horoscope. <laughs> So if a daddy asks you to eat his ass, don't. Don't. Don't do daddy. So today, as per usual, Nick Joyner will be coming on um, to lead a discussion about Demi Lovato. And then... We will have Bob from the LGBT Center come and give us some perspective of how Penn has changed in the last 35 years in terms of LGBTQ students on campus and activism. And yeah, just give us some insight. Hi, Nick. Hello. Thank you for bringing us <laughs> to your silly faggot corner. Um, thank you for attending at the request of John, because I don't like Demi Lovato. I don't support her. Um, we're going to be going through her memes, which really make her look bad. Um, the first one we're going to talk about is the I like mugs moment. Mm-hmm. Um so, she was in an interview. I don't know where it was. She was on some sort of Australia, red carpet. I in Australia. Thank you mm-hmm. for the clarification. And it was not a red carpet. Um, yeah, I mean, Demi, Demi's never been on a red carpet, so that's why she was out of place. Um, and they said, oh, Demi, what's your favorite dish? Like, dish meaning, like, obviously, like, what do you like to eat? Right. And she said, I like mugs. <laughs> <laughs> And then she went on to make it worse because they are very comfortable in your hand and they hold hot things that you do not like to touch. (laughs) (laughs) So that got that definitely got some Internet circulation, but that was just a small time meme. Well, and I want to note that also the next there is immediate aftermath. She replied. Yeah. So the, the next day she posted an Instagram holding like 20 mugs and she was. She was like, if you didn't get that that was a joke, you obviously don't understand my sense of humor. The next one is what we call Poot Lovato. Um, This was very big on gay Twitter. So I'm trying to, okay. Huge. Huge. So there was a photo of Demi Lovato on a red carpet. So I guess she has been on a red carpet. (laughs) Um, And her, just her first one. And she was um, taken, there was a photograph that was taken from like an unflattering angle. She's got like a buzz cut and some sort of like <laughs> little like swoosh. And um, I think this, I believe this was in January of 2015. So it was a bad photo. Then someone photoshopped it to make her look really lumpy because she literally looks like oh. a bowl of mashed potatoes. <laughs> and um, people started like doing fan art. They started like drawing this. And she responded to it. She said, quote, um, cool to see a shitty angle turn into a meme that circulates the internet to people's amusement. Ha. Huh? Oh, and make actual headlines, quote. I don't know why she was mad, because she hadn't made headlines before. So, like, this was, like, doing well for her. Um, and and, and then how she na- was named, too, when, like, like they were, like, Poot is her, like, uh, long-lost, like, sister, exactly. right? Who was, like, chained in a basement, I think, was the origin story. Exactly. Yes. Like, malnourished, like, <laughs> kept from human contact was exactly. Poot Lovato. And there's a 24-part story online. It has about 610,000 reads. <laughs> um... And it's basically just like fan fandom art, and I don't even know. And like, 
It goes back to, it goes into our next meme. Like, uh-huh. Poot Lovato's first words were deleted fat. <laughs> like, the, the story, the story turns out, starts out like, oh my God, Poot's about to speak. And then Poot's like, duh, 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 duh. And they're like, daddy? And she's like, no, delete it fat. <laughs> so let's, let's give context for that. Because this is, we've all agreed, the most important the demi-cultural best. moment. But I think it's also one of the lesser known. Okay, so this was from a fan who said that she met Demi. Um, but this was all made up. And, and it was posted to Twitter. It was posted to Twitter on, because you can only publish 140 characters on Twitter, so she used the app TwitLong to mm. post this in its entirety. It's a transcription. So I'm going to read it. Lovato was rude, not classy, and she lost a longtime Lovatic that day. A Lovatic is a fan from Demi. There's a few of them out there. Um, <laughs> I walked into a $350 meet and greet and say hello. She replies with, fat. I shook it off because I thought I had heard her wrong. As I approached her and asked to do my pose, she stared at me blank-faced. I continued talking. You saved my life, I say. You're the reason I'm alive today. She looks me dead in the eye and says, You'll die soon, fatty. And then, and then whispered, Obesity. <laughs> I started crying. I had never felt pain like this. And she started laughing and said, Are you crying? Stop it. Stop it now. And she flicked my vagina. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that, there we have, that's, that's the text. That's an excerpt. And then we can perform an exegesis, a textual analysis on what we have there. So I would say that this can be dubbed the vagina flick heard around the world. (laughs) (laughs) You called it vagina flick gate. Yes. Which I promptly Googled those exact words. (laughs) Is it, is that what it's called? Um, well, it kind of came up on Twitter as vagina flick gate. And this was... This goes back to I don't know 2013 2014 I think I think like so. I was in high school No this is this is 2015 Okay thank you mm-hmm. oh. So you were not in high I school. was not in high school So you were a sophomore Okay um, <laughs> But it I I read it like a lot and it gets me every time It really does It's, it's evergreen so It very much is So this was fabricated Yes but it caught on and like e news like reported on it, Jezebel like, was on it. Yeah. There were a bunch of people because there was was a story because Demi Lovato has struggled with an eating disorder. So people were like, "Why would she be fat shaming someone and flicking her in the clit?" <laughs> um, so I think that's what really took the meme down. If we're going to be honest, but what made the meme eternal was Demi's response. Yes. So okay, Jezebel says Demi Lovato dev- denies flicking fans' vagina at meet and greet in parentheses. Okay, Demi! Exclamation point. <laughs> Jezebel headline. So, here are the most notable moments. the The theme is that she always feels the need to come out and deny them or address them in some way that makes her in her mind look better. Mm. She'll she'll try. I think with the poot one, she like was really mad, and then she posted a gif of poot herself because she was like, "Ha ha, I'm on top of this." And I was like, no, your brand is diluted. She was flip-flopping between, you know, I'm being victimized versus I'm part of the joke. Mm -hmm. She really can't make up her mind. As someone who supports her generally more than Nick or I, um, how do you feel about her responses to these incidents? Her strategy? I think that her strategy is really bad and that she just doesn't understand meme culture, which is like... Okay, but that's why she's not as big as, like, she could be. Because, like, you have to, like, understand these types of things, and she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Her music is chill. Also, she's, like, everything about her, like, getting over her eating disorder and stuff, and it's, like, really important for people. 
So that's another reason why I really like and respect her. But in terms of like just giving the fans what they want outside of music, she kind of just is a little lacking. And mm-hmm. I think that's why she can't do meme culture like that, you know? I'm drained from this. Me too. So, thanks, Nick. We can only talk about someone I dislike for so long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All day. Bye. Thank you. Hello. Hi, Bob. Hi, John. Hi, Bob. Hi, Andreas. Shall we dive right in? Sure. Okay. So we want to start... Is there the provision for specifying anything as off the record, or is it just don't say anything if you don't want it on the recording? I would say don't say it. Okay, motherfucker. Bob is retired. (laughs) Bob off the leash. (laughs) Unfiltered. Hardly. Okay, so let's start from the very beginning. 1982. It's a very good place to start. Thank you. I I knew you'd pick up on the Sound of Music reference. So it's 1982. What is life like for gay students, LGBT students at the University of Pennsylvania? I know you know the story, but I will say that um, the sort of uh, final blow, no pun intended, was that a student was beaten up in his residence hall uh, for no uh, apparent reason other than he conformed to stereotypes of what many thought gay men were, being effeminate, being flamboyant and loud and and speaking his mind. And he was punched. And that was kind of the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. And students started, um, banded together and started with some uh, staff support to lobby for a point person. Um, and uh, that small amount of money was approved, and that was in 19 earlier in 1982, or the punching incident may have gone back to 1981. But anyway, um, and uh, during the summer of 1982, I was interviewed and um, selected for the then two-day-a-week position. And I started on uh, September 12th, 1982. It sounds like the punching incident was not necessarily completely isolated and maybe reflective of a larger... Yes, it was perhaps the most dramatic incident where there was literally blood drawn. But in terms of more subtler, uh, in terms of subtler uh, discrimination, name-calling scrawling uh, epithets on doors or, uh, you know, wallboards and so on. Yes, there were a lot. So I feel like um, there were a lot of issues mentioned. So what were some of the first projects or, like, um, steps of action that you took with other students to um, kind of get the ball rolling and change things in 1982? Well, we did some workshops for administrators we rallied, um, it was a kind of classic organizing uh, response to identify who the allies were. Um, Other people who were working 
under the uh, rubric of the Office of Student Life for my colleagues and my suite mates in 110 Houston Hall, um, people who immediately, most of whom were heterosexually identified, wanted to be allies. And we, um, we looked for support. We also started lobbying almost immediately for increased funding. And I know from my many colleagues across the country in other institutions of higher education that our road was relatively easy. Um, I never faced really significant opposition from the administration. It's not as if I walked into the president's office and was welcomed with open arms and said, you know, give us $100,000 as a budget. It was much more incremental than that. Changing gears a little bit, but I know that you were very involved with AIDS activism in Philly. You were one of the founders and the first uh, president of the board of directors for Action AIDS in Philly, which is now um, one of the largest HIV AIDS it's the largest in Pennsylvania. The largest in Pennsylvania. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious kind of specifically about on campus, like what it was like to be a student during the AIDS epidemic and, yes. you know, what the center's role was on campus. Yes. Well, um, I became involved in the spring of 1983 with the um, early efforts in the city. Um, to deal with this mysterious disease. It was not called AIDS then. Um, and uh, so there was a connection between my community activism, which, as you've noted, endured for quite some time and, and led to my involvement uh, with first the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force and then with what became Action AIDS and which is now Action Wellness, and who would have thought that an organization founded in the fall of 1986, um, 31 years ago, would still be necessary, although the role and the services have evolved. But um, in any case, that was there was a very strong connection, as there always has been in almost every aspect of what we do, between the world on campus and the world outside of campus. And so with my colleague, Steve Mullenix, who was the director of the counseling service who hired me, we started talking along with people from student health to say, we need to get the word out and what are we gonna do? And the most concrete result of that um, was the creation of the first pamphlet about um, about AIDS, um, HIV, um, for college students. And we published it, and it was just an eight and a half by 11 sheet uh, folded into three parts. And it kind of had definitions and advice about what you can do, how you can be more safe. It was really cutting edge information because, as you know, for quite some time, probably. Oh, eight or 10 years after that, um, the exact modes of transmission were unknown and uh, people were fighting bitterly about uh, how behaviors should be controlled or not controlled. The brochure was extremely help helpful and it became a model for other college campuses. 
So um, you touched upon this a little bit earlier about the community changing, especially with the renaming of a lot of um, LGBTQ groups on campus. But how else has basically like activism and groups on campus just changed throughout your time here? Well, um, the one obvious um, metric is the fact that I mentioned when I started that there was one student organization. Now there are two dozen or more student organizations. And over the years, they've been created and they've waxed and waned. And Penn is kind of known generally as, you know, if if you don't see a student organization that meets your needs, you should start one, which is how we end up with hundreds of uh, student organizations on campus. But various schools started having their own groups. I had already mentioned Wharton. But I think now 10 of the 12 schools within the university have their own organizations. Wharton has two. Um, More specialized groups were started by uh, religious interests uh, for people of color and then beyond that for more specific subsets of people of color. So we now have Penn Q&A for um, students who identify as queer and Asian. Um, religious uh, uh, groups, groups that are based on religious affinity, and so on. So that's a big difference. And then we had groups that um, advocated or did advocacy on particular issues. You talked about some of the obvious benefits of the expanding number of student groups. I was wondering if, from your perspective, seeing that full range of from when there was just one to now the very many that there are, and obviously that allows more people to feel like they have a spot for them in the community. Um, But are there any disadvantages or challenges that come along with that? Um, The answer is there's a downside. Uh, There are definite upsides, as you noted, but there's at least the downside that um, it's very difficult to get coordination among groups for shared um, goals and uh, objectives. I thought of another um, significant difference in answer to the earlier question between the early days and now, and that has to do with work with the undergraduate admissions office. The number of, though we don't have exact figures, um, there's strong reason to believe that the number of queer students on campus has increased dramatically over the last um, 10 years. Uh, They don't always um, remain, you know, they're very ardent when they're applying, coming to visit the center and saying, I'm really eager to um, be accepted here. And they don't always remain active in the community. And that's good news. They don't have to. They want to be at a place where they know they're not going to be discriminated against. But um, at the same time, there's a small part of me that wishes that they might give back a little bit more um, and, and realize that the LGBT center is not just a place where you go when you have a problem or not just a place where a an elite number of students go to hang out who are student leaders and student organization leaders and so on. Um, and, but still it, it's good news that they're there. You and I both wish that Bob. 
<laughs> so I think on the other hand, um, were there, do you have any highlights or like cool things that you want to share um, just in your experience here? Things that you'll be remembering fondly from the Poconos <laughs> for the rest of your retirement. Um, there were not a lot of low points. And especially right now, just almost exactly a week after the day of celebration of the 35th anniversary and the rededication of the building in my honor, everything has a kind of glow to it that um, probably keeps me from focusing on negatives. For those who are listening who are not there, this was a ceremony celebrating the 35th anniversary of the LGBT Center, celebrating Bob's contributions, and rededicating the carriage house as the Robert Schoenberg carriage house in your honor. And Amy Gutwin was there. The mayor of Philadelphia was there. It was Robert Schoenberg Day in Philadelphia. There was a three-hour party. So it would be hard. It's hard to think of a a high, if you will, that was any higher than last Saturday was. Last question we'll ask, and then we'll let you get back to your relaxing. (laughs) We've just reflected on a very illustrious 35 years, your time here at Penn. Looking forward, what do you think the next 35 years for LGBT life at Penn and the center looks like? Um, I'm optimistic. I'm very, I'm thrilled that Aaron Cross, who worked with me for nearly 20 years as the center's associate and then senior associate director, was uh, selected um, after a national search to succeed me as director of the LGBT Center. I'm very confident that the center is in good hands. Um, I know Erin's going to do amazing work. I know that she's going to um, continue a lot of what we've done um, during my administration. But I also know that she has um, different ways of looking at things than I do and maybe somewhat different priorities. Yes, and we love Erin. We really do. Thank you so much, Bob, for being here and also for everything you've done over the last 35 years. And also just want to take this moment to let everyone know that Bob and I are both from Erie, Pennsylvania and went to the same high school. And I just want to give Erie a shout out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not something that a lot of people know about me. For some reason, people tend to assume that I'm from the Big Apple. I guess it's because I'm so sophisticated and culturally (laughs) astute that they can't imagine that I come from Drury Erie, the mistake on the lake. All right, let's, um, let's be nice. <laughs> well, why, why should today be any different than any other day, John? <laughs> You're so right. I love being counseled by you, John Holmes, that I should be nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that you're right, you're right, that's a read. Well, Okay, thank- well, you can cut that out of the recording. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a good one, Bob. Thank, thank you so you, much. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to Bottoms on Top with myself, John Holmes, and my co-host, Andreas Pavlou. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. We record in the Wexler Recording Studio at Kelly Writer's House, and we want to give a special thanks to The Daily Pennsylvanian, our producer, Joyce Varma, and Andrew Ellis, who provides our theme music. You can find him on SoundCloud as Dummy Fresh. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or conspiracy theories, feel free to email us at podcasts at thedp.com. We'll see y'all in two weeks.